Thanks for joining us for the 2018 7th Annual Stroke Conference, The Pulse of Stroke Rehabilitation. This conference is sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. In this podcast lecture, A.M. Barrett presented Practice Run, a practice-based inpatient rehabilitation research network to improve spatial neglect care. Dr. Barrett is the Behavioral Neurology Cognitive Rehabilitation Director for Stroke Rehabilitation Research at Kessler Foundation. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, November 1st, 2018 at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Saddlebrook Campus, 300 Market Street, Saddlebrook, New Jersey. For more information about Kessler Foundation Research or Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, click on the links within the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. I'm a neurologist and, you know, and a scientist, as we said. I'm very privileged to be here within the Kessler Institute system as well as in the Research Foundation. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about this problem that people sometimes have after stroke, spatial neglect. Uh, many of you who might have attended this stroke conference in the past have heard me talk about some of the processes that we've developed within these systems. The good news is that this year I'm here to tell you about how we're implementing, how we're bringing that out to other hospitals across the nation and actually even around the world. Um, but right now we're going to talk about the network across the nation of hospitals that are using these processes. So the network is called Practice Run, a practice-based rehabilitation research network to improve spatial neglect care. And um, I'm employed, as we were saying, by the Kessler Foundation. Uh, um, I, as I stand here, I represent a whole lot of people with stroke. I represent a lot of funders, uh, kind donors who have been uh, um, the main source of support for the work that we're going to talk about today. Uh, and also, you know, the federal government and all of you as taxpayers uh, for the work that we've done. And um, uh, I'm not going to talk today about anything that's off-label. Uh, I do have some stuff on the web uh, that is related to e-medicine that's not related directly to this presentation today, but that is an honorarium. Right, so um, right here on the left side, you'll see somebody who's wearing the same the same accoutrement that I'm wearing today, the prism, the prism goggles. Oh, I need to bring my voice up. <laughs> Hello. Uh, sorry. Bob, here on the left side, is a, um, he's, he owns a truck detailing business. And unfortunately, at a young age, as you perhaps can see, he experienced a stroke. And he experienced that stroke in the right side of his brain. Many of you know that people will refer to the left side of the brain as the dominant half of the brain because it's related very critically to functions like speech and language and to the right hand, which many of us is, is our dominant hand for writing, for example. But the right brain is also dominant, and it's dominant for some very, very important functions. So basically, the right brain helps us to know where we are in the world at all times. So I'm going to try not to fall down as I do this demonstration. If I close my eyes, my right brain tells me that the podium is here, more or less. <laughs> that, um, you know, that the goggles are here, that you guys are right out here, that the wall is behind me. And I can even walk and move and I can talk and I can walk around at the same time. That's all the 
effortless functions of the right brain that tells me at all times exactly where my body is relative to the environment, even when my head is moving, even when my eyes are moving. So those are really, really complicated functions, actually. And there's no, nothing that tells us how complicated they are more than when we see our patients after right brain stroke, because we will see that the functions that were effortless before in terms of the way that they move and act in the three-dimensional world, their own, the, fab, the very fabric of their reality are lost. And so very simple things like identifying objects or depicting them, and one of the, the classical tasks we have people do, do is draw a clock. And that's Robert's attempt to draw a clock right after his right brain stroke. And we can see that even though somebody can kind of draw a whole circle, they may only represent the numbers that are on the right side because the side opposite to the side of their stroke, that part of the world kind of it becomes submerged into, into nothingness oftentimes for them. Um, and, they, and people will describe it in different ways. Unfortunately, you can't really see the, uh, the figures on the right <laughs> side of this. Um, but people will describe it in different ways and they will show you their internal experience when they draw and sometimes when they draw they will only produce the right side of what they see and not the left side of what they see. But more importantly I think when you and I come to the bedside of such a patient we may see them with their head and eyes turned to the side of space of their stroke. Right? And if we come to them from the other side of space, to their left side of their bed, and talk to them, they may act as if we're not even there. So they may omit or, or be, fail to orient to that side of space. More interestingly, but in a way that's kind of bizarre, if we talk to them from that side of space, they may actually look for us over here and answer. Right? And how many of you have experienced in an emergency room setting, for example, that we're talking to a patient, and a patient on the other side of the curtain answers us, right? <laughs> Let me, let me give you a piece of information that will allow you to become an expert or, or a, 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 a celebrated diagnostician. Um, you could try to, you can make a bet, you can put your quarter down that that person probably has injury to the right frontal regions of the brain because they've lost that ability to find the three-dimensional coordinates that their, that their information comes from. And so oftentimes they just answer to whatever information. And like we were talking about when we come to the left side of the bed, like, hi, how are you doing today? I'm just fine. You know, it's, it's wherever the information's coming from, I'm going to look, this is where I'm going to look. Um, and it doesn't, you know, obviously if somebody's over there talking to somebody there, I with my, we hope, functional right brain system know that that information isn't directed at me, but the person with neglect doesn't know that. That we have these other phenomena too that the person can have that are very disabling. The person can have difficulty knowing that he or she is weak on the left side after the paralysis that's caused by stroke. Um, a person may not even recognize that, that part of the body as being theirs. And these are, of course, very interesting, fascinating problems, right? But what I think I and some of my colleagues have been very focused on is that when their family members or when those of us um, who know a lot about stroke are working with people who are less experienced with stroke and neurological disorders, oftentimes those folks really kind of get um, get alienated by those symptoms. And they'll think of those symptoms as being very different from the way that you and I might look at them. Um, I've heard family members say, well, she, she doesn't, you know, for, in an instance in which a patient had this inability to identify the left, side, left arm and would consistently say that this arm was her husband's, um, her husband told me, well, it's because she and I were arguing a lot before her stroke. 
And he felt terribly guilty. I could see on his face the pain that he was experiencing. And I said, well, you know, I, that's possible, I think, but I think m more likely that this is just part of the stroke, uh, in the stroke manifestation in her. And maybe it has nothing to do with how she's feeling about you right now. So we have to remember this difficulty, this psychosocial difficulty and this caregiver burden. And we'll come back to that because I think that's something very um, important. But something that I and my colleagues were very interested in when we first came here about 14 years ago was that what we were kind of taught in an uh, academic setting was that we might want to use paper and pencil tests as an objective way to look at this problem. You know, we kind of knew when somebody had this problem, spatial neglect, and we kind of knew when the person didn't. But how could we show, how could we prove, how could we demonstrate that. And this is actually a really good task to use. In, in, a in a study that was done in the 1980s, it was shown to be a really good predictor for disability. You can just show somebody on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper a line, or you can just draw it. And you can ask them to draw, the, to mark the center of it. And um, what most of us will do is actually mark a little bit to the left of center. You guys should feel lucky, because sometimes I've asked the whole audience here to do this task, and people will be like, yeah, and then they draw the line, and you know, and y you can prove it to yourself tonight. You can. I've done this kind of um, demonstration sometimes for some of my my. I have two teenagers, so I do it with my teenagers and their friends, and they're like, "Oh, I went to the left. How did you know I would go to the left?" Because your right brain is dominant for this kind of a spatial computation task. And then, unfortunately, if the right brain is injured, what will happen is people will go to the right, even if they can see over here. So this was actually produced by a person who did not have a hemianopia, did not have a field cut. Um, and they're unaware, as, as this patient was, that this is a problem. Um, similarly, if you take a piece of paper again and just kind of draw a whole bunch of chicken scratches all over it and then ask the patient to cancel them, this is a task called the Albert task. Uh, that a person in, at Boston City Hospital, Martin Albert, at the time he was at Boston City, Martin Albert invented, um, and you ask them to cross all of them, the classical thing that will happen after somebody has a right brain stroke, again because they have this difficulty orienting toward the left, is that they will omit the ones on the left side. And actually, Dr. Mr. Liu had just reminded me that I don't have to be, I'm not trapped back there. <laughs> so this person has marked all of the ones on this side. And interestingly, right, the, the paper is kind of, the far part of the paper is easier for this patient than the near part of the paper, and that's very classical too. But these, the thing I didn't, I dislike about these tasks is they take a couple minutes to give. It's, it's kind of um, an extra thing. And what are you gonna do? Are you gonna scan them and put them in the chart? Or how are you gonna make them available to people? And um, they don't really speak to me in terms of someone's functional performance. They seem much more kind of an, like an intellectual thing that's esoteric. And even the NIH stroke scale items, so there are a couple items that are used to look at, at spatial neglect, but really only um, a few points uh, that are um, looked at. And in fact, the NIH stroke scale, many of you might know, is less sensitive to right brain stroke than it is to left brain stroke. Um, but for example, the, the item for spatial neglect that's used is the extinction item. So I'm sure all of you are quite familiar with it. That Antoinette, I'll, um, if, you'll, if you'll humor me, I'll demonstrate. If she is looking right at my nose, I ask her, can you see my hand? Yes, yes. and where, is it, where am I moving? And she might point, for example, and then I say, can you see my hand? Yes, and she's doing it. <laughs> Isn't that great? Look. 
<laughs> look how well she does. Okay, so now can you see my hand and which one is moving? Both of them, look at that, beautiful. So she doesn't have extinction, but a person who has extinction after right brain stroke may easily see this one. They don't have, potentially, may not have a hemianopia. They may see the left side easily. However, when there's two, they may only see the right. Because again, it's a, a, it's a, a higher level problem. It's not a problem with seeing, it's a problem with capacity and attentional capacity. So they can't um, kind of, it's kind of like they only have a flashlight where you're supposed to have a floodlight and they can't kind of get that flashlight to both places at the same time. Um, so this is an item that's useful if the person has it, but many people with this problem do not have this disorder. And um, that's an issue because uh, frequently I think we see these patients, and this is an example of this kind of, of behavior that we may see, and it's not captured um, by the NIH stroke scale, right? So this patient, um, and again, think about if you didn't know anything about neurology, if you're looking at somebody and they're talking to a doctor and they're just not looking at the doctor, they're looking away, think about how that kind of, the impression that kind of creates. Um, I think that it, it, it's, it's very um, disabling, very alienating. It really removes the, the ability for the patient to be engaged in his or her plan and for others to be motivated to do that. And so oftentimes what I hear um, family members talking about is how the personality change that they may have seen or how the person's not trying. And the, this, you know, this person actually, you can see her eyes, if you can see her, her eyes, they're actually trying, she's really trying to look over toward the left side, but she has difficulty because of a turn tendency that's part of the spatial neglect syndrome, but that's not being captured on most of our tests. So what my colleagues and I here in rehabilitation were able to do was to think about these problems. So this is kind of two other examples. And you know, we see this kind of thing all the time, right? But we know that this is the result of a, the spatial neglect that happens after right brain stroke. And what we also, I hope, know is that this can be completely independent of the ability to identify things on the left side. So this person might not have any extinction on, um, uh, if, we're, if we get in front of her face, she may not have any extinction at all on the left side. Um, she may be able to orient. So if you ask her to, to touch the left side, you know, or her left brake, she may be able to do that. However, she has this propensity, this preference uh, for the right side. And so does this patient who's attempting to transfer to a commode. And these people can fall even when they are appropriately guarded. Right? So we've all seen that, but it's very difficult to explain that to other people. And in particular, what I really worry about in my interest for the care of these patients is it's very difficult to explain to public health people who are monitoring the quality of care. Because if someone is walking with someone like this who has this very severe turning tendency or transferring with them, it, it may be very challenging to keep them perfectly safe, even if your hands are right on them and you're appropriately guarding them. Um, so that's something I think that people don't understand is part of this visual or cognitive problem that these abnormal movements, abnormal functional motor performance. How many of us have seen these kind of things in our patients? All of us, right? Yes. <laughs> That's why I love talking to the, this kind of a group, right? Because I don't, and I don't know if you all know, when you talk to your patients about this problem, like I remember one time a, a family member said to me, well, why does his head always turn to the right if it's a vision problem? So these kind of simple explanations that this is a problem that causes somebody to make inaccurate movements that are imbalanced as well as, as um, having difficulty with vision and attention. Um, well, we can see these problems in the way that people do tasks. And I'm just going to show a quick 
video, and I know that this is going to be a very familiar scenario, but then I'll talk to you a little bit about how this informed a process for our developing an assessment. This. There's a, a patient here at Kessler. She's being asked to take the therapist to her bed. She almost hits the door there on the right. And her bed was the second one, the one closer to the door. So she's gone past it. Where was your bed? My bed was to the left there. So she saw the bed, actually, and she knows that it's there. But she just kept going to the right, past it. Right, so what, again, um, many of us might right away say, well, this is somebody who's having problems with spatial neglect. But uh, we, I think something that's important for us to think about is that sometimes patients like this are said to, to be impulsive. She may also be impulsive. However, this is not necessarily impulsiveness that we're seeing. This is a rightward movement tendency, uh, potentially. Um, the patient may be said to be, um, to be disoriented. And I would say, well, you know, does she know what day it is? Does she know what month it is? Does she know where she is? She may know all of those things. So she may be oriented, but she has a spatial, spatial difficulty. And the importance of that is that sometimes I've seen patients like this not get access to rehabilitation services because it says that they have too much behavioral or too much of a cognitive issue. And in fact, what we're going to talk about is that they may be really good candidates for specific kinds of cognitive interventions, but it's a care pathway that we need to think about. So here's another example of that kind of a problem that can sometimes be misdiagnosed. She's being asked to put on her glasses. And it just stops. So again, we need more than just vision to do functional performance tests. Now I'm going to try not to, again, I'm going to try not to fall down like I always try to do. And I'm going to try not to poke myself in the eye. I actually did that one time when I was doing this presentation. Didn't make it an optimal presentation. Um, so again, if we talk about spatial neglect as being a visual problem, a difficulty with that is it doesn't necessarily kind of tell our patients about all the functional movement issues that they, they um, or their families that the patient may have. So if you're putting on your glasses, um, what you need to be able to do is not necessarily visual, all visual. So I can um, put on my glasses potentially because I have kind of a, an ability to perceive where my glasses are in space, even though I have a relatively small amount of information that I'm getting. I'm getting some weight information also. And then I have a representation of my body, presumably. But more importantly, I have this kind of arc of movement that I can make. Look at that. <laughs> Yay, I did it. Oh, you guys are so nice. <laughs> and again, no, no, again, so I managed to put on my glasses. Um, now, if you remember one thing from today's talk, besides the rightward head, remember this. This is the hanging eyeglasses sign. 
whenever you see this, unless somebody has a vestibular disorder um, or maybe they've had a Wallenberg syndrome, those are the two other relatively rare, and that has a visual, a vestibular disorder as part of it. Uh, think about spatial neglect. This person has spatial neglect until proven otherwise. And in fact, one of my colleagues who's a stroke coordinator um, uh, was able to, again, I'll tell you these things like the across the curtain thing to make you, help you to look, you know, really show off in front of your colleagues. And, Does that patient have a right brain stroke in the, in the, next, uh, in the next cubicle? Why, yes, they do. Um, in the same way, when you, it, one of my colleagues who's an initial coordinator saw someone across the ER who was being evaluated for a left arm pain. <laughs> and he had a chronic spatial neglect syndrome. And he had left arm pain because he had wedged it uh, in between, I think, his wheelchair and, um, and the, something, the wall or something like this. So he had a spatial neglect syndrome and she saw him across the emergency room with this hanging eyeglasses sign. Because what can happen when people have spatial neglect is that the arc of movement gets impaired. And interestingly, it oftentimes gets impaired in an upward direction. Um, but we get this, this thing where the glasses are not sitting on the face properly. And, um, you know, it's again not necessarily a visual problem at all. And what we saw, in, I don't know if you noticed, but was that there's very little leftward movement happening here. She's making a movement, but mostly she's moving her head to the right. And then in, after right brain stroke, there's also this problem where movement generation or overall body movement can be decreased. So then the movement just stops. And we can conclude, right, that she has, uh, you know, problems with motivation, problems with, you know, abulia. And maybe she has those things too, but a primary problem here is that she is not able to make a leftward arc of movement that's effective. So in the laboratory, we can do things like separate movement and action, and we did all these different studies with kind of video apparatus to try to show, because the problem is that when we're w watching somebody do something, you know, like a line bisection, for example, their movement and their, what they're seeing are linked. Um, however, what we were able to do um, in uh, some studies that we did here at the Kessler Institute with our, um, with our therapy colleagues was really to study people's functional performance of their daily life tasks as they, we were doing their assessment of, for their therapy. And what we were able to show is that after left brain stroke and after right brain stroke, so after left brain stroke about um, Actually, it was about half of people, but over many, many studies, about 30% of people. And after right brain stroke, about 50% of people have evidence if you study their functional performance as they're doing things like getting dressed, um, washing their face, eating. Um, they're going to be asymmetric, potentially asymmetric, and potentially have evidence of spatial neglect. So it's a very, very common problem, and probably one of the reasons why, I mean, at at most of your institutions, are you diagnosing half of your patients with right brain stroke with spatial neglect? Maybe not, right? It's possible. And what's interesting is we were just looking at some people who are more severe, and I was suggesting, hey, those people really are potentially people who could benefit from intensive rehabilitation that's targeted at spatial neglect. But another group of people are people with mild neglect who we may not be catching when they're in the acute setting unless they have a functional performance assessment and they too can really benefit from a, a short period of, of treatment, a uh, 10 day period of treatment with the prism goggles that I'm gonna tell you about in a sec. Okay, you can see this celebrity in this picture 
in the back row. <laughs> this is Robin Hedeman and this is Joan Alverzo. And they are responsible for the, the inception of our network. And because they partnered with us, I think it was really a wonderful, such a wonderful partnership and such a courageous partnership that um, Kessler Institute entered into with us, really to understand what was the magnitude of spatial neglect that was potentially able to be treated that we weren't. Where was the gap? And it's always very brave when people look for the gap because you have to admit, well, there's some people who maybe have neglect, for example, and are not being identified. And as we said, about 50% of people with right brain stroke, about 30% of people with left brain stroke, about 30% of people with TBI who were hospitalized on the brain injury units turned out when we looked at their kind of performance on research-related tasks to have evidence that they could be treated for spatial neglect. And um, what we were able to do with Robin and Joan's support is do things like look at records and see if people, people were documenting the problem. And I think one of the reasons they weren't documenting it, which is something that I as a neurologist definitely um, find that I do, is that if I'm, it's not part of my treatment plan, I'm not going to be necessarily focused on it. So what was the treatment plan and what were the tools and the specific protocols that we were going to introduce. So we were able to identify the gap, but then how could we address the gap with treatment and make that both feasible and potentially something that would address the outcomes that we care about. So I've been talking a lot about movement because I think that there's, it's very interesting to me that although it's very clear that people with neglect have these problematic movements and have trouble with safety, oftentimes when people talk about safety after stroke, they really don't focus on spatial neglect. But the, or they'll talk about you know, the visual problems in spatial neglect and they'll say oh, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting or it's kind of puzzling that people with spatial neglect have such a big problem with falls. But it doesn't surprise me at all because oftentimes I see people with spatial neglect actively resisting the attempts by their therapist to keep them safe. And this is something we need to help our payers to be aware of so that they know what we're doing um, to try to help. So we were in, co in collaboration with Robin and the staffs um, and all of the staffs here continue to support this. Um, Gretchen March, who's going to be speaking after me, um, will talk a lot about how these implementations took place. But what we've been able to do is to take a scale that was already available called the Catherine Bergago scale, and it was being used in Europe to evaluate people with spatial neglect during func functional performance of daily life tasks and make it usable for our therapists. And really to the credit of um, the, the program leaders here in Kessler Institute, as we began to show that this was a way of, of showing the gaps. So we had you know, a certain number of people who were documented and then a larger number of people who had a problem on these functional assessment. Um, then they helped us to create the, the, the fertile ground and to create the care pathway so that people who have this problem um, can then move forward to assessment. Now, I'm going to, uh, do you mind if I, ter terribly if I pick on you some, we, during the early years of doing this, we reached out to some of our colleagues who were therapists in other systems. And um, some of them uh, partnered with us to learn this assessment. Do you want to say anything about your experience in learning it or how it might or might not have been useful to you? Well, I'm a speech therapist. The OT would do with our facilities. So mm -hmm. now they have been, they used to put the glasses in. So we were saying that at, at um, yeah. University yeah. Hospital, that um, is, is one of your colleagues using here who's using it? I mean, she's the OT, but I'm not sure if the other OT is doing the, mm -hmm. um, the uh, KFNAP. It was it, not anymore. Okay. Kathy 
Yeah, she was using the calf net. Yeah. She had a whole prism. She put the prism glasses on, but the research in the And she did the assessment first before she did that? I believe she yeah. did something with the, with the yeah. device, right? Have you, d have you done any of the assessments with this tool? No? Mm. No? Yeah. Okay, well, maybe, Antoinette, do you want to speak about what you think that the therapists are getting out of using this tool rather than doing neg a neglect assessment based on other methods? Well, it's just very functionally based. So, I mean, we do AMADL, so it just makes perfect sense when we're looking at that. So you could see and related to function mm -hmm. to hopefully obviously then introduce other treatments to make them more independent and safer. So I think we've we've heard a couple different things from University Hospital and then from here as you as you said that doing this assessment kind of blends in um, with the activity of daily living assessment and, and management in the morning. But then also you were saying that you were using the, um, this assessment to assign treatment and potentially you, what we've been recommending is a specific treatment because it may be more feasible and more replicable. But it is a, it's, a, it's really kind of a NIH stroke scale of neglect. And so you know how you never do just the NIH stroke scale, you're doing your neurological assessment. But the NIH stroke scale can kind of be folded into it. And what's nice about the CAFNAP or the Kessler Foundation neglect assessment process is that it, it goes with the daily life tasks that the person is doing. So it's not like a line bisection task or something like this, which is kind of more abstract. This is, um, you know, like when the person is navigating with a wheelchair, like we just saw in that video, how is the person doing? Does the person have a collision like that person just did? with something on the right and, and ignore stuff on the left. Is the person dressing asymmetrically? And that's different from being too weak or not knowing that the left side has to be dressed first. It, it means that the person didn't even try to dress their left side and then doesn't ask you for any assistance. So you have to do things a little bit differently, but it doesn't require kind of a whole new process. It requires just some extra documentation time. And it's easy for me to say just some extra documentation time, but I think it is, you know, what speaks to it is the fact that you all at the Kessler Institute and the group here at the Kessler Institute has been able to use it and has been entering into the electronic medical record. And we have thousands of people now who have had this assessment in the Kessler's, the four Kessler's um, in New Jersey. So um, this is Lauren McDonough here, uh, our, our um, director of inpatient rehabilitation. And what we were able to show once we were using this tool frequently is that it did seem to capture more in terms of the relevant disability. So we were talking about this kind of puzzle of falls and why they're more common. Um, it did seem to show that the more severe the person's neglect was, the more increased their risk of falls. And in fact, people who had over a certain amount of neglect on the, on the Catherine Bergago scale had a six and a half times increased risk of falls in the hospital. In fact, all but one of the people who fell during that study period had neglect. So that's, you know, it's, people when they study falls, oftentimes they'll talk a little bit about neglect, but they won't talk about it in a major way after stroke. And I think it's because they're maybe not diagnosing everybody who really has this problem. And what's really important to our stakeholders is that they stayed longer and they also were less likely to go home despite staying here longer. And they made less, less um, recovery, made less gains on functional independence. And what's confusing, I think, to me when I interact with my colleagues um, nationally and internationally about this, the American Heart Association, the American Occupational Therapy Association, um, the, you know, the UK um, National uh, Clinical Guidelines Center, and they have, um, I forgot what the NICE stands for, 
that basically the um, Royal College of Physicians that puts forward recommendations, most of them have kind of given choices to clinicians and said, well, there's, some, there's four different approaches you could consider. There's seven different approaches you can consider. There's eight different approaches you can consider. But I, as a clinician, I kind of need to be guided toward like, what am I going to try first? And I think that what I um, and our, my colleagues and here, elsewhere, um, were really affected by was that one treatment allowed us to really target functional movement, which we thought was maybe something, this turning tendency was maybe something to focus on at the beginning, and also was feasible in short sessions, so about 20-minute sessions for about 10 days, and relatively inexpensive. So um, this group actually did a little cost estimation and showed that if you got a new set of goggles for every patient, it should cost about $350 a patient to give this treatment, which is not, not bad. Um, and they felt it was cost effective. But other forms of treatment, you know, I, I, I'm very interested in treatments like virtual reality treatments and this kind of thing. However, they may not be as useful in under, um, underserved settings. And what's been great about things like prism adaptation is we have places like Newark Beth Israel and other kinds of partners who don't have the option of using more expensive treatments, but this is a, a treatment that is feasible there. And we don't have to ask the patient to do something consciously. And I'll show you about that. Um, the other things about this treatment is it's manualized, replicable, and it can be rapidly trained. So I'm going to show you guys um, what PRISM adaptation is, and I need a volunteer. Don't all of you jump up at once <laughs> to, <laughs> to be part of it. I'll come down the aisle and make it accessible to those of you who are <laughs> further back. Oh, I love it. People are like, no, not me. <laughs> not me. Not me, please. You, you volunteer? Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to put a chair right over here. This is so kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> You're being such a good sport. Okay. So first I'm going to show you that she's able to do a visual motor task easily. I'm going to ask you, are you right-handed? Yes. Okay, great. With your right index finger, would you touch the center of your chest? Perfect. And then go ahead and touch the pen. Good. Beautiful. <laughs> and do that a few more times for me. Just and touch the center of your chest each time. Good. Oh. Beautiful. Oh, good. There you go. Yep, carefully. Good. That's perfect. Okay. So she's, she can do that easily. And, you know, most people with neglect can do that kind of simple task relatively easily. But it, it is a, um, in miniature, uh, a, um, a, a plan for the kind of problems that they have. And sometimes they have trouble, right, making these leftward movements. All right. So what I'm going to ask you to do is put on these goggles. And they are what we call yoked wedge prisms. And the, they shift what the person sees about 11 degrees to this direction. Okay, so shall I? Good. How do you feel? Good. Do they hurt you? No. no. They feel okay? Okay, good. I'm going to ask you to touch the center of your chest. Now, very quickly, without thinking, go ahead and touch the pen. Good. <laughs> Great. So some of you can see she was about this much to the right. I'm going to ask you to keep doing that. Just keep touching the pen. Good. And touch the center of your chest. Good. And, and touch the pen. And I'm going to move it around. I apologize to make it difficult, but it's going to make the training even better. She's being such a good sport about this. Great. And you see that, like, even after a few times, right, she's become more accurate. Keep doing it. Because her um, visual motor systems, especially her motor system, is capable of adjusting so that it will make kind of more oomph to the left. Now, you're doing this automatically, right? You're not trying to tell yourself to go too far to one direction no. or another. Good. Perfect. A little bit faster, if you don't mind. 
Good. Oh, look how well she's doing. Good. <laughs> she's doing a great job. Okay, so in the actual treatment, we would do this kind of a thing. Well, just a couple more times. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Listen to me. Oh, just, we're almost done. <laughs> um, good. That's great. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. In the actual treatment, we would do that for about 20 minutes, and we would use uh, a kit that has some lines and stuff for people to see. Okay, keep your eyes closed and touch the center of your chest. Now what I'm going to ask you to do in a second is open your eyes and quickly touch the pen. Ooh, <laughs> one more time. Good, that's good. Okay, so she went about this much to the left. So without my even telling you, you started to move more to the left side. And what we show in people with spatial neglect is that before the treatment, if we ask them to point to a spot directly opposite the center of their chest, a form of spatial neglect, again, that's not visual, is that they will displace to the right. So they'll point a little bit off to the right. And then often, or usually, after even the first session, and that's about a 15 to 20 minute session, they'll point further to the left. But what's kind of more interesting, oh, let's give you a big round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. You were really a good sport. And see, she walks well. And <laughs> no. Um, no, so in healthy people, the effect lasts only a few seconds. Um, however, in people with spatial neglect, what's interesting is that, um, and my colleagues have, have shared this, that sometimes you can see people sitting up more straight even after the first session. And um, what can definitely happen, and there have been something like, um, there have been something like two, 500 studies in the laboratory and about 25 studies that actually involve functional disability. Um, you show that after receiving um, treatments, so the treatments have been, you know, between, in the studies have been between one and ten sessions, but mostly now the trials are done with ten sessions over two weeks. Um, and so what people will show is that functional abilities actually get better. So people ask me this very frequently, I'll say it one more time, people's functional ability actually gets better after 10 sessions. So that's very compatible with a stay here at Kessler Institute. And what people oftentimes say to me is, somebody's had a pretty severe stroke. How can staying in inpatient rehabilitation for just a couple weeks make a big difference to them? And I say to them, well, you know, I know that it may seem like there's a lot, many goals to, to address. However, when we have certain protocols that have been shown in randomized controlled trials to be effective to improve functional disability in a period that's similar to the period that the patient will stay in the hospital, I think we can make a difference. And these are some of the things we hope we, that we're doing with inpatient rehabilitation, right? We're doing evidence-based care that's going to enhance long-term outcomes. So the problem we faced when we identified this it was that we started to use it within the Kessler Institute. Um, however, we really wanted it to be more widespread. And as we were talking about when we interacted with our colleagues at, at University Hospital, at Newark Beth Israel, and other places, they were really very interested in learning more about this, but we didn't really kind of know how can we make this more available. And one way of doing things would be to publish more and more papers and this kind of thing. But one of the things that we were blessed to be able to do because we have donors in the Kessler Foundation was to create a learning center that therapists could use to learn about doing both the PRISM treatment and the assessment that we talked about before, to learn about doing the pathway of care. But it's hard to kind of do that all on your own, especially if you're a busy clinician. And I know as somebody who's, been try who's tried to kind of, you know, roll out some of the newer treatments for my patients and neurologic patients, I usually need kind of a roadmap. I need a, a, I need a playbook. 
And if I'm going to use this approach, so again, it's 10 20-minute sessions over two weeks. And what we've shown is that it increases the ability to move leftward. Um, but what we were able to do is put together a kit that kind of had everything in it so people don't have to build their own goggles. And um, again, uh, there's many, many studies, not just a couple studies, but many, many studies in the lab that show improvement on what we would call impairment tests, like the line bisection we looked at. But then there's 24 clinical studies that show functional gains on things like reading, walking, dressing, um, you know, bathing, that kind of thing. And again, the, um, the UK study estimated that it's very affordable. So um, what we chose to do was to, take, to make a choice to focus on one treatment. And, and by doing that, I'm not saying that we decided that this was the only treatment that would ever be useful for spatial neglect at all. It's just that we focused on it because it was potentially feasible and it was replicable. And it can be learned. You, know, you saw um, that the basis, the core of this treatment can be learned in a few minutes. So we can train um, people to do this. And this is a group from Ohio Health. Actually, she's at Banner Health now. And she's going to be, they're going to be joining the um, Select system, I heard. <laughs> so she's at Banner Health now. And this is a group from Select. And this is Peggy Chen, Dr. Chen, and Dr. Reha. She's also from um, uh, SSM, sorry, in Bridgeton in, in, in Missouri. Uh, and they, learning, they are learning in a half day uh, to do the PRISM adaptation treatment. And you don't only learn the core of the treatment that you guys basically know already now, but how to do it in somebody who's kind of you know, easily tires. How do you do it in, if somebody is, uh, has some pain? How do you do it if the person has a lot of trouble moving to the left and they can't have a lot of head turning? So these are kind of the advanced placement uh, aspects of doing this treatment. But we can really train people to do it relatively quickly. And this is Chris Gonzalez, who's the um, AVP for programs and who has been very, very critical in putting forward this effort. Um, so those of you who have gotten tired of watching the TEDx about PRISM adaptation <laughs> that I hope all of you will watch. And, and you can click like, and you can click sub no. <laughs> subscribe. <laughs> no, you don't have to do any of those things. But you can watch the TEDx that I did uh, in 2016 about this. But it's also quite entertaining to watch uh, a, an interview I did with San Sanjay Gupta a number of years ago. I think it was 2015 on this topic. And he's just a wonderful, wonderful presenter and really made it very clear, I think, what, what might be useful about this treatment. And so what we've been trying to do is really put this forward for you know, anybody in the US to use, because again, it, we think that it will enhance improvement. So again, these two things for inpatient rehabilitation, you have mild patients who might not need uh, rehabilitation. Remember that we're always underestimating pretty much with our standard processes what's going on in the right brain. And the NIH stroke scale really underestimates right brain stroke severity. So they may have undetected and disabling spatial neglect. And God forbid that person falls or has a tra car accident or something like this. And it could, you know, a 10-day admission to inpatient rehabilitation may make the difference to that person staying at home and being successful in the community. And Bob, who we saw at the beginning, um, is that kind of success story. Um, somebody with a more severe stroke, interestingly, although you may think that they're devastated and they'll never get back to a stage where they have any independence, they may be able to do things again. Am I running short of time? Okay, I'll, I'll wind up in about two minutes. Okay, so there's the TEDx. Again, like. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, so <laughs> I don't even look at those. I don't care. Uh, th these are the parts of our network, 
And what's really exciting about the people who are doing it, so these are the groups that have gotten trained. More than 100 therapists have been trained now. And we're now looking at um, kind of public health outcomes, cost efficacy, that kind of thing. So we're looking at home discharge, falls, length of stay, and improvement in functional independence. And what, um, for those of you, how many of us are familiar with the FIM and, and what kind of FIM gains we want to see? Right, so it's about 20, 23 and a half is the average FIM gain for the patients who are receiving prism adaptation. So that's, I mean, that's, right? <laughs> it's not, not terrible. And what's, of course, they're spontaneously improving at the same time. It's not a controlled study. At the same time, I'm very pleased to, hear, to say that. And what I'm, I'm able to do because of the involvement of the network and because people are telling us about their experience is I'm able to tell you that some people leave the hospital with no symptoms of neglect. So I never thought that that would be the case. But, and I know, we're trying to identify who are those people and what are the things that are happening. Okay, so. Last, so the last thing is, this is Bob. He's not only gone back to driving, but he was caregiver for his parents when they needed some help uh, a few years ago. So he was able to drive, because he's driving, he was able to drive down to Delaware and help them out. Okay. Thank you so much. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.